remission of sin. Amen. Hallelujah. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read in verse 5 to the end of the chapter. If you physically able, can you stand with me while we read from God's Word? Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanius, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all, to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. And I pray, God, as we look into the word, that the word will look into us. I pray that you'll till up the soul of our hearts and be able to receive a word from you this morning. I pray, God, that it will take root in the very depths of our heart. And having take root, that it will take root downward and it will yield fruit upward. And that's exactly what will happen if it does take root. Remove all the distractions that come our way in the next few minutes because there will be plenty enough of them. Remove all the things that the devil could orchestrate uh, to try to uh, get us out of focus, to derail our attention and put us solely fixed on you, Jesus, and what you would say from your living word. We praise you for it. You've given it to us. Uh, it's revelation straight from you and we receive it as such. And I pray that a holy fear will fall over every one of us as we approach your word and will receive it as, as the word of the living God, able to make us wise unto salvation. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there is power in submission. There is powerlessness in rebellion. There is exposure in rebellion. It makes us fodder for the enemy. And the Apostle Peter, as he writes to a group of Christians who are undergoing suffering and persecution, as we've talked about time and again, who are about to go undergo even more intense suffering and persecution, he rounds it out with his last call for submission in verse 5 of chapter 5 by, ask, by exhorting the younger people to submit to the elders and then all of us to be submissive to one another for the sake of humility and the power that comes along with it. As we talked about before, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, the, the apostle went into submission to government. In 1 Peter 2, verse 18, it was employee to employer. In 1 Peter 3, 1, it's wives to husbands. And now we find uh, the fourth of his admonitions in 1 Peter 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, the younger to the elder. We look at this and it makes it clear as he goes right into our call to be submissive to one another, to be clothed with humility. And we looked at it last week. That means a garment. It's like putting on a garment, uh, getting ready to serve. That we would put on the garment of humility by faith. 
And we see that the enemy of submission is pride. The enemy of submission is pride. But the power over pride is found in humility. But not just humility that we think of, human humility, which is a, often just a cloak for pride underneath. It's, a, it's, a, it's the humility of Jesus Christ. And if anybody outdid themselves in showing what humility is all about, is it not our Lord? We go look in Philippians chapter 2. And it's a very familiar passage with all of us, but let's go look there. Because nowhere in the Scriptures is humility illustrated uh, and uh, like uh, it is in the, in the humility of our Savior. In Philippians chapter 2, we went through the, a verse-by-verse study months ago in Philippians and verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth <clears throat> and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that God is triune. He is three in one. And Jesus Christ is God the Son. Jesus Christ is God. And for Him, God, to become a man, and then a man not of, 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 of reputation, not coming to the earth as an earthly king, but born in a manger, in a humble beginning, to come there and to humble Himself, and to humble himself to the point of being called to obey the Father's will, to be sacrificed on the cross, naked, on a trash heap, outside the streets of Jerusalem, in public shame and humiliation, the death on the cross. If God, God, who is none higher, can go to a place that's no lower, then humility must be the defining characteristic of a Spirit-filled Christian. It would have to be. It would have to be. See, man may exalt the prideful, but God most assuredly does not. Man, men exalt prideful people. Usually prideful people are the ones who quote-unquote excel. They're, they're full of self-confidence. They're full of um, themselves. And most people, sometimes just because of intimidation, have a tendency to exalt prideful people who are just full of themselves. Men exalt them. But I'll assure you, in the economy of God, God most assuredly does not. As a matter of fact, it's not just a matter of the fact that God does not exalt the prideful. He stands and acts in opposition to them. It's not just that He pays them no attention. Oh, just go on with your prideful pursuits. They'll catch up with you. No. No, no, no. It's, 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 it's worse than that. He stands and acts in opposition to the prideful. The pride of man is really a defining characteristic of a fool. And apart from Christ, we're fools. And what does the pride of the fool say? I can be and do without God. I don't want you and I don't need you. 
I don't need to be saved because I'm all right on my own. And even if I needed to be saved, I could pull it off myself. And I can do, uh, I'm king of me. We've talked about it time and again. Uh, but if you go look at it in Psalms 14, and the Bible says this three times in God's Word, no less. But in Psalm 14, which is the first time it appears in God's Word, look what the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, there is, in many of your versions, is in italics. And the reason it is, is because it was put there to make it readable in English. But if you transliterate that, the fool has said in his heart, no God. He doesn't say there is no God. He says, no God. The God I know through conscience and creation, I want no part of. You are messing with me. You're messing with my life. And the, the greatest thing that I don't like about you is, is because I acknowledge you exist, you make me feel guilty for the unrighteousness that I know characterizes my life. So if I can suppress the truth about you, I can feel better about my sin. It's a, it's a, it is an unsuccessful attempt to appease the guilt of man to say, no, God. That is the pathology of pride. And I say this, it's easy to look at the fool and go, how could they think that way? But watch out. Because many of us in the Christian life trust the Lord to save us, but we don't trust Him to power us to live holy. And what is that but pride? We say, oh yes, justification is by faith. And we'll assert that, oh, salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then we start living the Christian life. And what do we do? We take the same pride that almost led to our destruction and use it to fool other people by slapping Christianity on it. And it's nothing but human pride. You got me in, Lord, but it's up to me to keep me. You got me in, Lord, but it's up to me to empower me. You got me in, Lord, but now that we're in, no God. I don't need you. And he's saying, you know what? Put on humility. See, the pride of the fool says, I can be and do without God. He even says, I can be without God. He doesn't affirm even the fact that the heartbeat that he's working on right now is a gift from God. And he can stop at his discretion just like that. I was in the line at Publix last night. And we're looking at all the filth in the magazine line. And I just, just caught my attention where there was a magazine that said, and it had pictures of celebrities who died too early. And I thought, who says? They died too early? Who says? Who says? Their last heartbeat took place under the sovereign discretion and direct will of Almighty God. You know, we have no part and parcel in that. The Bible says, in your book, they all were written, the day is fashioned for me. When as yet there were none. The Lord knows exactly the number of our days. He has them numbered. Oh, the pride of man. It's a stinking, nasty thing. And buddy, it's all around us. I can be without Him. Not even recognizing or affirming or appreciating the fact that He created you. And He created us. And He created me. And by the way, everything that He that is, had been created, He owns I don't want or need him. Contrast that with the humble man. Here's the humble man. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Could I just say this parenthetically? When you talk about next week and you talk about your schedule, 
always couch it in terms that say, Lord willing, I'm going to do this. Lord willing, I'm going to do that. Lord willing, we'll go here. Lord willing, we're going on vacation next week. Lord willing, I'm going to go to work tomorrow. Lord willing, because anything else is presumptuous and evil according to the book of James. And it's saying in our pride, God, I decide what I'm going to do next week. Let me tell you something right now. We're totally at the mercy of God as to what we're going to do next week. We're the mercy of God when we're going to do the next five minutes. Be careful. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. John 15, 5. It's a familiar verse with most of you. Let's go look over there. Look at John 15, 5. I am the vine, our Lord says. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul Marcel affirmed in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, for in Him we live and move and breathe and have our being. It is all in His discretion. It is all up to Him. It is all under the power of our Lord. Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, look at what we just read in Philippians chapter 2. Our Lord humbled Himself, became obedient unto death, and because He did that, what's the Lord given Him? <clears throat> A name above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility is the enemy of submission. I mean, pride is the enemy of submission. And humility is the enemy of pride. And it's manifest in submission. Now look at verse 7. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, verse 6, that He may exalt you in due time. Remember, men exalt prideful people, but God most assuredly doesn't. Casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. We talked about this last week. In your submission, when you find it hard, cast your cares upon Him. Because submission in the most difficult of circumstances is used by the Lord to further humble us, to lead us to the very humility of our Savior on the cross, which leads to deep fellowship and Christ-likeness. <laughs> you know what? This is, this is us. This is me. And I know... You know, we're a lot alike. <laughs> we really, really, really appreciate the work of the cross for us. But we can come to resent, if we're not careful, we certainly will in the flesh, the work that God wills to do of the cross in us. And he uses submission in the most difficult of circumstances. Just remember, don't forget, let it be in the backdrop as you read First Peter, that he's talking to people that he's asking them to honor an authority that's over them that's having them killed and is going to have them killed and use them to light up his garden parties. I would say that that would be probably hard to submit to a leader like that. Just guessing. And in that submission, he's saying this, when you find it difficult to do it, give it to me. Give it to me. Because guess what? Here's the grace. Here's the grace. But by submitting to ourselves to authority, we're commending ourselves to God. 
We're, we're turning it over to God. We're not shouldering a burden anymore that is ours uh, to carry. It's His to carry. Lord, You know that Nero is emperor and You put him there. And he'll be emperor as long as you decide he'll be emperor. And the moment you decide to remove him from that position, you will remove him. And then you'll replace him with whoever you decide is going to come in behind him because you're the one who's sovereign over all of this. Our example here again, our, our, our power is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. <clears throat> For what credit is it if you, when you're beaten for your faults and take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, and if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Did you ever know that, that boy, people love to talk about high callings in their life. I'm called to this or called to that. Have you ever got up and heard somebody get up and say, I am so grateful that God has called me to suffer patiently uh, when, for doing good. And every one of us in this room as a believer has a call to that. I just never heard that before during testify time. I don't mean our testify time, but I just never heard that. But we were to say it, we were to affirm it, because this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled did not revile in return, and when He suffered He did not threaten. But here's the deal. He committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. Oh Lord, I don't stand in judgment of Nero. I don't stand in judgment of anybody who's over me in authority. You do. And I believe you're big enough to take care of it. Don't take matters into your own hands. Commend ourselves to the Lord. It's an act of nurturing trust. It's where we get up in his lap and say, Daddy, Daddy, I can't hardly stand this. It's, it's difficult. I'm being falsely accused. I'm being mistreated just because of my Christian faith. I don't even know why I'm being mistreated sometimes. And he listens to you patiently and says, and rubs your little face and says, you hang in there because you're becoming just like my son. I got this designed for you. I did this for you. This is a grace. I am dealing graciously with you. Don't view this as being by disfavor. View this as being what it really is, my favor upon you. Because I want you just like my son. I want you to discard those grave clothes. I want you to come out of that place and take them off and be loosed and made free. Why can we rest like that? Here's why we can rest in like that. And we bring it back to bear again because the Scriptures bring it back to bear again. It is because God is in authority over all our authorities and furthermore, God appoints them. Did you hear that? We're, we, sometimes we, we, sometimes we, stop, we stop and we don't go far enough. We don't go as far as the Bible goes. And we'll say, okay, all right, I'll give you that. God is, is in authority over, over all our authorities. I'm good with that. That seems... My flesh will fit into that. Because a good bit of what we say is Christian, I'm afraid, and our sanctification is nothing but flesh management. And, and, so, and so my flesh is cool with that. I'll give you that much. He's in authority over the authorities. But the Bible says not only is He in authority over the authorities, but He appoints them. And that really rubs us the wrong way. You mean to tell me that Nero's the king because God made him king? Yes. You know what? He's in charge of all the authorities. We just read it a few weeks ago. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. 
So encourage in 1 Peter 3, 22. Do you remember that after Jesus was raised from the dead, He went to heaven and went to the very bowels of the abyss where all the angels who had lost their place, that precipitated God's action in the flood, the ones who had come down and married the, the women and created a, 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 a muted, muted, Christ, a muted human uh, angelic uh, uh, mutation and that he wiped out the whole population of the world in order to get rid of that and they were all assigned to the very bowels of the abyss he went down there and he went as high as you could go he went as high as you can go went low as you can go and everywhere in between and what was the result he's gone into heaven in verse 22 he's at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him they're subject to Him. And that subjection is not just mean He's ultimately in control of the boundaries that they can work in. It also means that He put them there. It means He put them there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We can commend ourselves to a loving, benevolent, caring God in the midst of the most difficult, perplexing circumstances. And when we don't understand, how could this be? This is just not right. We can take all of that and we can renew our minds and offer up our body as living sacrifices. And Christianity then is not just a theory, speculative, but it's a reality experienced. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be sober. <clears throat> that word means calm and collected in spirit. I like that. Calm and collected in spirit. It is the one who has come to the place in their Christian life that few Christians, I'm afraid, probably ever come. And that is that they're totally, completely crucified. And Christ lives in them. And the life they live in the flesh, they live by the faith of the Son of God who loved them and gave Himself up for them. It's the life of the unfurrowed brow. It is a life of a quiet confidence. It's the rest that's talked about in the book of Hebrews whereby we have completely abandoned all efforts to justify ourselves when we got saved. And we've also abandoned all efforts to sanctify ourselves now that we have been saved. It's the Christ life. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of peace when the storms are raging. It is a place of quiet confidence. It's calmness and collected in spirit. At the same time, it's not slumber. It's not, it's not uh, sluggish. It's vigilant. It says be sober, but be vigilant. That means cautious. It means give strict attention to. Tend to your Christian life. Tend to your walk. Be watchful. Be under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The word he uses, it's translated from the Greek devil here, is slanderer. Slanderer. Your adversary, the slanderer, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, he slanders and makes false charges in a variety of ways. One could be this. <clears throat> He's always there to remind us of our past. I don't think the word failure is a good word to use. He's always there to remind us of our past sin. 
It's amazing how we couch terms like that and uh, try to dress up sin by calling it failure. You know, that was a failure. No, sin. Sin. Um, and, 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 and all the, and we mistakes and stuff like that. We make mistakes, but it's always couched in sin. And, and, uh, and he's there to, to bring them up, you know, and to accuse us, to, to raise accusations. It's also there to doubt and cause us and try to get us to cast out on the love and care of God. I'm convinced of that. You know, and, um, oh, God's in charge of all this. You guys, uh, Rome burned. Nero blames you for it, and now you're suffering because of it, and and God loves you. <laughs> okay, right. You know, we talked about this time and again. The devil cannot do anything about our relationship. I know that as a cause of great angst for him. So what does he do? He goes about doing whatever he can to mess up our fellowship. But you know what? Isn't it grateful to know that the enemies pitted against the world, flesh, and the devil, all three have been overcome and defeated. They're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. But look what, look what it says. See who made it. Why is this in this context? Why would this have come at the end of all this teaching on submission? Because if the devil can lure you into rebellion, he has just lured you into the world he lives in. He was a rebel and the murderer from the beginning. Matter of fact, from an analogy standpoint, I think it's helpful in sharing the gospel to draw in Barabbas if you can. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. We release one prisoner. Why don't we pick Barabbas? And the Bible says about Barabbas that he was a rebel and a murderer. He mounted some kind of coup or insurrection attempt against the Roman government. And in doing that, got other people killed. And that makes him a rebel and a murderer. And the same thing still going on today. That Jesus Christ was offered up for every one of us who are but, on our own, what? Rebels and murderers. Well, where did we get that from? We get that from the first rebel who brought in murder. And that was the devil. So we're playing into his trap. The Bible says to resist him. Here's the great thing. He's resistible. Bible wouldn't say resist him if it wasn't resistible. Amen? Hallelujah! He's resistible! He's resistible if we're not careful. We give so much airtime to the devil and his minions that we'll start to think about him being bigger than God. He's not. He's been defeated. The judgment of the God of this age has already taken place. It's past tense. It happened on the cross of Calvary. He's resistible. That word means to stand up against. It means to stand solid. It has the picture of being balanced. That on both ends you're not waffling, but you've got a solid stance. You're balanced. You're solid. It's, it's a person who has, has got quiet confidence in the Word of God. We resist the devil by resisting our impulses to rebel and informed and empowered by the Word of God. We resist the devil by resisting our impulses to rebel. And our impulses to rebel are overcome when we're informed and empowered by the Word of God through the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Resist. Don't take matters into your own hands. Be steadfast in the faith. He is resistible. Hallelujah. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by the brotherhood in the world. We've got to draw upon this and we've got to do it. 
We've got to do it every time. We've done it before. Matthew chapter 4. Let's take a quick trip there. This has become one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Because there's so much here. It's like the Bible. That's the way the Bible is, isn't it? Because it's an alive book that appoints us to a living Lord. We don't need to repeat this, but we will repeat it. Jesus, when He was tempted by the devil, when these temptations were real, these temptations tempted His humanity. His divinity was not tempted. His humanity was tempted. His divinity can't be tempted. The Bible says that God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does He tempt anyone with evil. So His divinity was not tempted. That's the reason this account of the temptation is not in the Gospel of John. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke, but it's not in John. Because John, the theme of John is that Jesus is God. And so here we have Jesus in His humanity being tempted. And in verse 4, here's His response. But He answered and said, It is written. Second temptation comes His way in verse 7. And Jesus said to Him, It is written. And in verse 10, Jesus said to Him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written. Quoting the Word of God three times from scriptures found in the book of Deuteronomy. This is the power that the Word of God wields. It is written. The Bible says if we hide the Word of God in our heart, that we might not sin against the Lord. We're empowered by the Word of the Holy Spirit who wrote it. Look at James 4, verse 7. He's resistible. Be not careful. Sometimes we can view him as being irresistible. The devil is resistible. When, when, not through our authority, and not through our power, but through God's, and the power and the authority that's been assigned to His Son. Therefore, submit to God. Okay, submission to God results in resistance in the devil, and He will flee from you. What happened in the third temptation account? He fled. <laughs> Away with you. And he fled. Submission to God and his delegated authorities, which includes everybody, is the key to resistance. We resist the devil not by resisting our authorities, but by commending ourselves to the Lord and giving our impulse to resist over to the Lord. And in so doing that, we resist the devil, who is a rebel and a murderer. Steadfast in the faith. Look at Revelation. I mean, look at back at look at First Peter, chapter five. Steadfast in the faith. Resist him, comma. Steadfast in the faith. It's another way of saying through the word of the living God, because the Bible says that Romans chapter ten, verse seventeen, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. The word of God. And so the light dispels the darkness. Bring the Word in. Bring the Word in. Bring the Word in. As it is written. You know Jesus referred to the devil as the ruler of this world and the God, little g, of this world three times in the Gospels. In John 12, verse 31. John 14, verse 30. In John 16, verse 11. Our Lord called Him the God of this world. Did you know that that confirms 
that the last temptation of the three where he said, you look over the kingdoms of the world, and if you bow down to me, I'll give them to you. It, they were his to give. They were the devil's to give. And in his submission, he overcame and God got it back. The rule and authority. Hallelujah. Jesus did not resist him by a sword. He resisted him to the cross that he ultimately died on. Praise his holy brings to mind the fact, little wonder that Peter was chosen to be the vessel through whom God wrote this. Little wonder it would be Peter. Little wonder. God just has a, a, a way of just highlighting. It's almost like He's just holding up Peter and saying, look what I did with this guy. This guy. You were talking about an erratic, uh, uh, unstable uh, resistor this guy is. I mean, look what I did with him. I got, I, not only did I change him and I used him to preach at Pentecost so the church was born, but I used him to write a book about submission when he had a hard time doing it. I've changed this man. It's like the Lord is just celebrating the fact that he changed him. Because he fell into the same trap that he was warning them to stay away from. Don't you fall in. You resist, you resist the enemy not by rebelling against your authorities. You resist your enemy by submitting to them even when they seem to be evil. Because... I learned that lesson. Let me tell you, he didn't go into it because he's been forgiven, so no use of bringing it up. But we can bring it up because it's helpful to understand the composite picture of this man, what he used to be and now what he is. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. We'll go there quickly. Look at 13 through 23. When Jesus came into the reason of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, I'm sorry, I'll, get, I'll let you get there. I'm too quick. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 uh, verses 13 and following. You remember this. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Parenthetically, it wasn't saying he was going to build the church on Peter. He was going to build the church on Peter's confession. And he said, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that he, that he should tell no one, they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and raised the third day. Now what a, what a thing to learn. You're in there and you're part of His crowd and you're expecting you're going to be Vice President, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, something. I mean, because He picked you and you're part of the twelve. He's still sticking with you. You're about to go into Jerusalem and you're thinking, man, this is its time. He's going to restore the kingdom to the Jews. It's, it's it. It's on now, buddy. We're going to march into Jerusalem, our swords in tow, and he's going to do something miraculous, and he's going to sit on the throne of David, and everything's going to, and I'm going to be one of the top guys in his kingdom, and he will be. He is one of the top guys in his kingdom, but not now, because in between, he's got a confession to make, and that is this. Jesus says, yeah, I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by the way, we're going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. 
pluck out my beard, spit upon me, falsely accuse me, beat me to a half inch inch of my life, strip me naked, take my own cross, carry it to uh, Calvary, and be nailed to it, and die, and raise on the third day. Any questions? Peter was like, what? (laughs) Nothing doing. That's not my plan. That's not the way it's supposed to turn out. I didn't sign up for this. We do the same thing. I didn't sign up for that. He enlisted you for that in me. And look what he said after having this great highlight in his life and hearing, Oh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has revealed this to you. You're a Peter. And upon what you just said, I'm going to build my church. And it had to be like a high five moment, an end zone moment for Peter. Man, I got it right this time. As crazy and as impetuous and as unrestful as I can be, I got it right this time. And the Lord's proud of me. And then he turns around and says, But by the way, in between the time, there's a cross. And then he took him, and Peter said, Peter took the Lord aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? He just confessed that he's the son of the living God. He rebuking God. Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. And he turned Jesus to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. See, he was being lured into the trap of the devil. And he called him the devil because he was playing into the rebellion that got the devil kicked out of heaven in the first place that he tries to lure you and I into. Y'all rebel. Assert your rights. Sharpen your sword. We're not supposed to sharpen our sword. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ that says we're supposed to get on the cross. Speaking of sharpening his swords, little wonder that God would take this man, little wonder that God would take this man to write this to people who are about to go under intense suffering and, 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 are, and, are gonna, and could be tempted to resist and, and take matters into their own hands and would be tempted to do so because he was tempted the same way. Look at John 18. Verses 10 to 11. John chapter 18, 10 to 11. Simon Peter, here we go again. Aren't you glad that Peter's in the Bible? It offers a great a lot, a lot of comfort to us to have a tendency to act like him. Which I think includes all of us. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? He's asking you and me as Christians in America the same question. Shall I not drink the cup He's given us? Not to be saved, but because we are saved. Not to be redeemed, but because we are redeemed. Not to His add to His suffering, but because of His suffering. He said to him in that Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. See, on the nights, this is my sanctified imagination, but on the nights when they were camping and all the other disciples were frolicking around and maybe they had some kind of game like Uno. You know, they're over there doing Uno. What's Peter doing? He's over on the side somewhere and he's sharpening his sword. I'm getting ready. I don't care what the Lord said. This thing's going to be sharp and it's going to be ready. And when trouble comes, I promise you, I'll be right in the middle of it. I'll be prepared for it. Instead of sharpening his sword, he should have been sharpening his resolve to deny himself and to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Don't sharpen your sword. Sharpen your resolve to have the same mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Arm yourself with the same attitude. If the suffering comes our way, it'll be for redemptive purposes. If the suffering comes our way, it will purify my confession. It'll make me more confident in my salvation. And I tell you one thing, it'll make my salvation abundantly evident to others. And it will grow the church.
in closing, I know we're about to have the Lord's Supper. Look what he says. I love the way he ends this. It's just like a crescendo of praise. These guys do this, you know. If we, if we, if he says, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Paul was given to this in his letters. They just break out. You know, they just got to break out. It's like, oh, goodness, it's got to come out. Me go to talking about this, it's got to come out. Look what he says. Resist him, the devil. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Shouldn't we pray for them this morning? Because suffering is going on in the body of Christ throughout the world. And it is helpful to know to others that even though ours might be not as intense, and it's certainly not as others, it is helpful to know that we have this thing together. That we're not some, we're not some aberration of Christian faith. That part and parcel to Christian faith is suffering throughout, through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. And then he breaks out. This is where he breaks out. But may the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your suffering does not change that one iota. Your suffering confirms that. He will perfect. It means to bring to wholeness. He will establish. It means to set fast. He will strengthen. It means to make sturdy. He will settle. It means to lay as a foundation. You know what the foundation of the church is laid on? Jesus Christ and His... He's the cornerstone with the doctrine of the apostles and the suffering to follow. The suffering to follow. It's a firm foundation. The reason it is is because people who endure in suffering when they can fish and cut bait are real. They're real. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, the Apostle Paul, let's go over there. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. The Apostle Paul is talking to his son of the faith, Timothy. He's giving him a heads up about what he's going to face. Look what he says to him. tenderness of this word, these words. In the heart of a man who loved his young protege of the faith, born out of the heart of God who called both of them, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please he who enlisted him as a soldier. He's saying, I'm convinced. Grow strong in the grace of God because in the middle of your suffering, when He's dealing graciously with you, you will be tempted to think He's being ungracious to you. You better know something of the grace of God. You better know something of the unmerited favor of God when the bottom drops out 
and everything seems to go awry and dreams are destroyed and expectations are not met and false accusations rail and all the things come, you better grow deep in the grace of God because growing deep in the grace of God is your power to persevere because you will not misinterpret what God's doing. What others would say would be God's disfavor when in reality it's God's favor. And by the way, it's unmerited. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Grow strong in grace. And when things don't seem to be graciously being dealt with in your life, you won't succumb to the temptation to misinterpret what's going on. In verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll finish it by Sylvanus. Our faithful brothers, I consider him that Silas, Paul's traveling and ministry commandment, uh, companion. I've written you briefly. He actually transcribed or dictated the letter. Or he dictated the letter to Silas and he wrote it out and he delivered it where he wanted it to go. He's already going to testify that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Your standing is in grace. She who is in Babylon, many Bible commentators believe he meant Rome, but he wasn't saying Rome outright. He knew what they would that he knew his readers would know what he meant because he didn't want them to run into trouble for the persecution that was coming their way. Elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And you recall that uh, he left Paul and abandoned Paul when things got hard, and Paul pretty upset at him, and God restored him and used him to write the Gospel of Mark. Aren't you grateful guys like that? Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. The grace of suffering. Suffering for the cause of Christ is unmerited favor. <laughs> and the devil and his attempts to make us cut and run or be rebellious to the authorities in our lives because that's the pathology of the devil. We can resist him. He's resistible through the Word of God. We can stand firm and walk in the joy. That's the inheritance of God's elect.